healing. Mere mention of the word can summon the most complicated feelings. We've all known someone who has sought healing and been disappointed. We've probably also known someone whose healing was unexpected. Our prayer list carries both kinds of stories. But since there can be no way of predicting whose name will go on the list and whose will come off, we tend to tuck away the word healing in a little file labeled maybe. The cynical remain skeptical. The hopeful keep hoping. Healing remains mysterious. Today, I hope to offer in part four of this Epiphany Insight series, an insight that expands our imagination about healing. But first, I want to make clear that it's important to remember the plain sense of healing. This is the meaning that anyone can understand. That is, healing means someone physically or mentally ill is cured from their illness. Healing means your suffering ends. Your anguish ceases. You were sick. Now you're well. You were unwell. Now you feel better. One of my retired friends who taught theology for many years and um, whose students often went on to be chaplains was once admitted to the hospital for emergency surgery. And when a chaplain came in to see him in pre-op, he said, how can I pray for you? And my friend grabbed him by the shirt and pulled him down close to him and said, adding a choice word or two, pray God will heal me. This is what I mean about the plain sense of healing. If I may testify for a moment, I believe this kind of healing happens. I believe God heals people physically in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, even sometimes when we don't know that that's what happened. I believe the God of Jesus Christ heals the sick. Then and now. And from a pastoral perspective, I've seen it many times. I've prayed by the bedsides of patients and congregation members whose eventual cures not only dumbfounded me, but surprised the doctors. These are dear folks still living, still gathered here for worship. You don't have to take my word for it. Find one of them, and they will testify too on their own behalf, without hesitation, that it was the power of God and the prayers of the people that lifted them up. You may have come across uh, a study done in 2017 by doctors at Vanderbilt University entitled Church Attendance, Allostatic Load, and Mortality in Middle-Aged Adults. You remember that study? <laughs> anyway, uh, adjusting for many variables like income, class, and race, they discovered church attendance results in a reduced mortality rate of 55%. And middle-aged adults. I mean, that's really when you need it. Uh, I'm learning. Um, isn't that a great statistic for a pastor to carry around? 
55% people, 55% improvement, come to church. I have become more interested in healing in recent years. I've made it a habit to take more seriously the scriptural admonition in the letter of James. Is anyone among you sick? Call the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise them up. From common colds, to knee replacement surgeries, from open heart surgeries to the bedsides of the dying. Depending on the circumstances, you'll probably find me or perhaps one of my colleagues with our Bible and a, a small vial of frankincense or olive oil to make the sign of the cross on your forehead or your hand. Sometimes I'll bless the sick person's caretaker too. I'm like Oprah Winfrey in that show where she gives out the free cars. I just... You get all, you get all. <laughs> because I don't know where God's power comes from or where it goes, but I believe in God's healing power. I hope for it. I mourn when healing doesn't come. I give thanks to God when it does. And my colleagues in ministry share the same hope. And we also, as well as the leaders of our congregation, welcome and take seriously your stories of healing. Jesus heals the sick. But how does he do it? Scholar Gerhard Lofink teaches us that it was by Jesus' healing that his reputation grew. Jesus stood out among the leaders and or the healers of his day for several reasons. First, he healed multitudes of people. The historical record shows that there is no other person in antiquity or the biblical times, ancient times, to whom so many healings are attributed. Second, Jesus healed quickly, but he didn't use magic. He recited no spells, used no special potions. Whether he healed by word or by touch, or whether the person was present or far away, the people he healed found themselves healed in the moment or within the hour. And third, Jesus healed in order to reveal the kingdom of God. He engaged people's faith. Healing reveals to us God's dream in these healing miracle stories Jesus does. He's revealing God's dream and desire for the flourishing of God's creatures and creation. Here's where we come to the insight about healing that I wish to offer today, courtesy of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells us Jesus went about teaching and preaching and healing. But note the order of events. Note the way the words run. Matthew says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming or preaching the good news of the kingdom, and curing, healing, every disease and every sickness among the people. So Matthew links healing to the teaching and the preaching. The healing follows the teaching and the preaching. 
For Matthew, the listening comes first. The healing comes second. First comes the word. Then comes the healing. First comes the the learning to see and to say. Then comes the restoration of the body. Once you see it in Matthew, you can't unsee it. Pick up a Bible. Read the first four chapters of Matthew. There are no detailed stories about healing. You get the Christmas story, you get Herod, you get John the Baptist, you get Jesus being tempted, you get the call of the disciples, and you get this little paragraph where it's a kind of foreshadowing uh, that you heard read so beautifully by Lucy. The lepers cleansed uh, eventually, but not until after the Sermon on the Mount. And then, he beca- then Jesus turns into Oprah, and he's healing everybody. It's the leper, it's the centurion slave, it's Peter's mother, uh, two demoniacs are exercised. It's a whole chapter of healing, but it follows the chapters of the teaching and the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say in his teaching and preaching that opened the floodgates on all of this healing? Far too much ground to cover in one sermon, but here's a sampling of what he teaches. How to bless the Beatitudes. He he opens the sermon just by blessing, not saying you need to and you have to and you ought to and you really need to try harder. (laughs) The theme of 99% of sermons, try a little harder. He doesn't do that. He blesses. He teaches us how to love our enemies. He teaches us how to pray. How to make amends when things go awry in our friendships. He teaches us how to stay married. He teaches us how to store up things we'll really treasure. Not that things that Moth and rust and time will destroy. He teaches us how not to worry. The birds are dressed just fine. They're beautiful. They don't have a care in the world. They're not worried about anything. And yet they're clothed. And he teaches us how to fast. It's this sermon that turned the world upside down. It's the sermon that opened the floodgates on the healing. It's the sermon that now makes me wonder how much more healing is in store for each one of us the more we listen to Jesus and learn from Him. Well, you might have expected me by this time to uh, follow up with a Cuba story. Well, I have a Cuba story. Uh, I didn't know this, uh, but they fast for us. Our sister churches in Cuba, they pray for us and they fast. And when they fast, they think about us. So when we went there, we fasted for a day. Uh, We skipped uh, breakfast and, and lunch and we prayed we spent time together with each other and it was wonderful to have an inside window 
into just how um, normal it is for them. Um, a few days later, though, uh, I got sick. Um, not from the fasting. I think it was from brushing my teeth with the, with the water. Note to self, don't rinse your toothbrush with the water in Cuba. Um, you can go to Mexico, you can go to Thailand, you can, you can go to some countries in the world, and if you drink the water, you can eventually get used to it. But even in Cuba, even the Cubans don't drink the water. You have to have a filter. You have to boil it. You have to uh, tend to it somehow to kill the bacteria. Well, just out of habit, I rinsed my toothbrush, and I think that's what happened. And one day I woke up just feeling bad. I just felt nauseous, and I didn't want to eat. And so I gathered with our team and, and our friends, and we went out to eat, and I sat at the table and watched everyone eat. <laughs> um, still had a good time. Then we went to visit a new church, Juan's Church, or affectionately Wani. And so uh, Wani comes in to the sanctuary, and I'm standing there with our friends, our church members, our team, and others. Um, how's everyone doing? Everyone's doing fine. Mac's not doing so great. Uh, and Juan offered me some tea. Uh, would you like some tea? And I thought, eh, I don't really know if I want any tea. It's chamomile tea. It'll make you feel better. It's good for the stomach. And what ails you? Okay, you, you sold me on the, on the chamomile tea. So I sat down and waited for the tea. The next thing I knew, Juan comes in with a handful of of chamomile, not a tea bag, not dried up tea, uh, chamomile that he apparently had growing in his garden and he's holding in front of me now and he puts it in my face to smell and I said, yeah, I'll have some of that. And so he made the tea, I drank it and I began to feel better. And across the day, and the evening I began to feel better, and the next day I woke up, and I felt great. Now, it was not only the chamomile, you see. It was the love, and the sincerity, and the gentleness, and the thoughtfulness of it all, and the solidarity that I felt, not only having fasted with them, but simply been with them, our friends in Cuba. Now, the State Department, I checked this this morning just to be sure, the State Department lists four countries uh, as state sponsors of terror. You may know this. Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Cuba. And so, when I think about Cuba now, though, I think about Revelation and I think about that little line in the last chapter. The leaves shall be for the healing of the nations. From Matthew's perspective, the hearing and the learning comes before the healing. Well, friends, I've been to Cuba. And I'm hearing. And I'm learning. And just from my singular and meager perspective, I can testify the healing 
does come.